Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is influential Nashville engineer Ed C. First of all, Nielsen Music's latest report says vinyl is up 19% this year over the same time last year. So for the first six months of the year, vinyl is up by a lot. A couple months ago, I mentioned about how I thought vinyl was plateauing. It doesn't seem to be, although the numbers are still sort of small in the grand scheme of things. For instance, even though it's up 19%, that only means 7.6 million sales. Now, that is 11.2% of all album sales and 19% of all physical album sales, but it's really not that much, again, in the grand scheme of things, when all is said and done. One of the interesting parts of this report was that CDs sold about 40.6 million in the first six months of the year. Why is that important? Well, last year, there was about 87 million sold. If things keep on going the way they are, that means that CD sales will be down, but they won't be down all that much. So for everyone that seems to be thinking that CD sales are going to fall off a cliff, that doesn't seem to be happening. Yes, they're decreasing every year, but not by as much as was predicted. So if we look at the top 10 vinyl albums of the year so far, what we find is Jack White, once again, leads everybody. And this seems to happen. Every year he releases a new vinyl album, and every year it hits the number one spot on the vinyl record list. So this one is Boarding House Ranch, but that only means 37,000 sold. Kendrick Lamar came in at number two with Damn, 30,000 sold. The soundtrack for Guardians of the Galaxy came in at 28,000. That was number three. Michael Jackson's Thriller at 28,000, number four. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors at 28,000, number five. Panic at the Disco, Pray for the Wicked, 26,000 at number six. Justin Timberlake's Man of the Woods, again, 26,000 or so at number seven. Prince of the Revolution, Purple Rain, the soundtrack, 25,000 for number eight. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, 25,000 at number nine. And The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 23,000 comes in last at number 10. When you look at this, what's interesting is the fact that there are still way too many old records that are appearing in the top 10. So for vinyl to have any real legs in the future, it's going to have to be more contemporary artists. And right now we're seeing some, but we're not seeing enough. So even though vinyl seems to be doing pretty well, it's not really going to make the music industry a huge amount of money, but it does make for a nice story. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, recently, I posted something about the Fender Jazzmaster on my blog. And what I posted about was the fact that it had just celebrated its 60th anniversary. Yeah, the Jazzmaster's been around for 60 years. 
But what I think is really compelling about this is the fact that it's really become the new Strat. When you look at all of the newer bands that are out there playing, instead of having Strats, all the guitar players have Jazz Masters. And this is kind of cool. I always felt that the Jazz Master is very, very unique, but it never really caught on the way it was supposed to, until now that is. So a little bit of history. The Jazz Master came out in 1958, and it was at the time the top of the Fender line sold for $329, which is about $50 more than the Strat. Now, it was definitely intended to go after jazz musicians, and especially after the jazz musicians that were using Gibson guitars. Gibson had owned that market at the time, and Leo Fender was trying to go after some of that market. So he thought he would design a guitar that would appeal to the jazz player. And what he did was he made a guitar that, in fact, had a very mellow sound. This comes from the flat pickups, and the coils were very, very wide underneath the top of the pickup cover. And the magnets were actually underneath, so that really took away a lot of the attack of the sound, and it gave it what he thought was a better jazz sound. The other thing was that the offset body was made specifically for a player that was sitting rather than standing. So again, most jazz players of the time sat. It was also the first Fender guitar with the Rosewood fretboard, and it had a new floating tremolo, which never really caught on, but it was unique for the time. It also had a rhythm circuit, so you could switch between a lead and a rhythm circuit. Again, totally unique, but not something that ever really caught on. So jazz players kind of shunned it. And for a while, Fender actually thought it was a bleak failure. In the 60s, though, surf bands, especially in California, really took a liking to the Jazzmaster. And this is brought about by the Ventures. Bob Bogle, who was the lead guitar player at the time and eventually became the bass player of the Ventures, he played a Jazzmaster on their really big hit and influential hit, Walk Don't Run. And if you were a guitar player coming up in the 60s and 70s and maybe even a little bit later, that was one of the songs, one of the first songs that you learned how to play. A little bit later into the 80s and even into the 90s, punk bands began to really dig having a jazz master in the band. And we saw that with television, the band television, and with Sonic Youth and many, many more. The problem was it still wasn't selling, so Fender actually discontinued it in 1980, but reintroduced it in 1984, but it never really took off until 1994. In 1994, the Jazzmaster got a whole new life, and now, today, it's bigger than ever, and in fact, in some ways, it's more influential for today's players than a Strat, for sure. One interesting thing, and probably the last thing I'll say about this, is the fact that you can still buy a vintage Jazzmaster for not a lot of money. For instance, a 1958 Jazzmaster goes for about 4000 bucks. That's it. A 1975 one goes for about 1500 Now compare that to any other vintage guitar of that era, and you'll find that that's kind of like peanuts. And it's really not that far away from what a brand new instrument costs these days. Jazzmasters now come in a lot of different forms. There's a lot of different models. There's something for everybody. But I personally still like the classic versions. But I think it's also one of those things that's generational. 
And now that we have this generation really digging that instrument, let's see how long it carries on. But right now, Fender is enjoying the fact that the Jazzmaster has had a resurgence again. Nashville engineer Ed C. has worked with hit makers like Blake Shelton, Lee Bryce, Martina McBride, Ricky Skaggs, Dolly Parton, Pam Tillis, Highway 101, Colin Ray, and many others. And he was one of the first high-profile engineers to champion in-the-box recording and mixing. His most recent project was totally unique, however, as he was called to re-record and mix the re-release of a well-loved Elvis Presley gospel album. On the podcast today, Ed described what he went through to both preserve Elvis's original performances while trying to update the sound with some brand new music. We spoke via phone from his studio in Nashville. Let's talk about the Elvis project that you're doing. Give me some background on this. How did it all come about? Sure. Okay. Um, originally, uh, you know, Elvis back in the, 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 from 66 on, or even earlier than that, probably, but I think the earliest tape we had was 60. It may have been earlier than 66, but we, we had maybe, uh, there was several from 66, um, that, that he had recorded way back in the day. And, and we, the, what we were working with was stuff that was from, I think basically 66 to 72. And he, he loved gospel music more than anything. And, um, he started every session and, you know, with it, generally get the Jordan airs to, uh, rally around and, and play some and kind of warm up a little bit. And I come to find out that, some of the people that were with him at, in Las Vegas said the same thing. After the show, they'd go back to the room and they'd sing gospel songs uh, many nights till dawn, you know, till sun came up. And uh, so he he really loved that. And uh, um, so they he'd put out several albums, um, and they did very well. They were, you know, very successful. But they were all done like fifty years ago, and uh, so. I think, uh, uh, Sony and, uh, there, there was two, two factions that had to agree on this project. One is, is Sony, um, in New York because they, they control Elvis's music. Um, the other was a, a fellow named Joel Weinshanker and he controls Elvis's likeness. Mm. And, um, he's, he's the one that is, uh, running the show in, in Memphis and he built the hotel down there and he got the planes back and it, a nice venue. And he's, he's, um, uh, you know, in, in charge of that portion of Elvis's stuff. And, uh, and so, uh, he had gotten in touch with uh, a fellow named Andy Childs. Now, Andy was a, uh, a country artist from Memphis, from Memphis, actually originally, a country artist that, uh, uh, you know, had the uh, two or three records out, uh, in the nineties and, uh, d didn't really become a giant knows a lot of people, but didn't really become a giant household name, but in town knows a lot of folks. And so he, he, he'd moved on to doing some other things. Um, like he's got a, a like, a um, he, he still sings some jingles, but he also has a, a, and he does, um, uh, well, he has a, um, a, what do you call it? A corporate band that, uh, he and some other refugees from failed record deals have put together and they kill it. They're a band called six wire uh -huh. and they're, they're phenomenal. And they, they 
they open up these corporate things and play these events and charities and all, and they, they'll get one of the uh, uh, ex lead singers from uh, from uh, Journey or ex lead singer from uh, um, Kansas, you know, because Kansas changed singers for a while, and, yeah. and you know, Syrian, he'll get. Uh, uh, Chris Isaac to to sing a couple of songs. So they he'll put these packages together where the band can play anything. They're all session quality players, and they there may be a couple of country songs, a couple of rock songs, a, a pop. You know, and then they they they're they're doing that. But in addition to this, Andy also has been instrumental in working with uh, Elvis's uh, through Joel Elvis's uh, some of the. Elvis week and some of the, the different events that they do and that kind of stuff. And, uh, some of the big screen stuff, you know, where they would put a big, shoot a big show, a big screen with Elvis and, but have a live band playing. And so he's kind of been one of Joel's go-to guys. And so Andy calls up and said, Hey, I, I've got a really cool project. And, uh, so we started talking about it and, and what it was, was, was this, that while the gospel records were great, back in, you know, 50 years ago, uh, for what they were these days, nobody would make a gospel record like that. I mean, they just wouldn't, they, they wouldn't sound quite the same. The uh, structure of, of a lot of those Elvis things was from the downbeat. Everybody was in so just huge, just, you know, and there was, and so, they uh, they they got in touch with with Andy and they said, look, let's figure out how to do this. And so they figured the songs, went through a lot of songs, figured the songs, whittled it down because he did several albums. There's lots of songs uh, of the gospel stuff. And so we they fiddled it, whittled it down. And so then they released Sony. Sony and and Joel had to co-agree, and they all did. And so Joel. So Sony, New York, uh, Sony Legacy got, uh, which is Willie Nelson and Elvis Presley and, you know, big, big iconic artists. And, and so they uh, released the lead, the, the, the tracks, the lead vocals uh, on some of these original records that we wound up working with. And um, uh, really, really in, incredible stuff. Songs like I've Got Confidence, uh, um, Crying in the Chapel. How great thou art, which was huge, and uh, you'll never walk alone. And uh, and um, uh, he touched me in the garden, um, and, and just amazing grace, and all these things. And then uh, what we would have to do is to be. We went into this saying, okay, look, we're not going to turn Elvis into a a. Uh, we're not going to turn him into Justin Bieber. Nothing wrong with Justin Bieber, but that would not be respectful of of who Elvis is and his legacy. And so more like what we approached was like, if, if we were all in the studio about to record and Elvis walks in the door, just out of the blue and says, Hey guys, let's, let's make a gospel record. And that was the approach. It's like, we wouldn't do it quite the same way. We would, the arrangements were are a little different. Andy rearranged this stuff. A lot of times these songs were like two minutes and 10 seconds long, the originals. And that just seems, well, it's very short. And so what we would, what he would do was restructure it. And instead of like having verse, chorus, verse out, uh, you know, or verse, chorus, verse, chorus out, he may put an instrumental in or um, this, this kind of situation and to try to give it a, a more modern approach. Now we 
had the lead vocal and that's all we worked with. We, we had the other stuff, but we didn't use that. I mean, cause that's, um, that was the whole, the, the whole point. And so we put the, uh, the lead vocal and we, we figured out what we wanted to do with that. And then the task was he'd come up with arrangements in some cases we moved the band, the, the grid to, to Elvis In others. We, we put Elvis to the grid, uh, because you can't add a, a new band if everybody's just wandering around, you know, it just, yeah, yeah. just doesn't work. So, so we had to, we had to actually uh, put him on the grid and find the tempo that is a good average. And so on some, we, we moved Elvis to the grid and, um, and quite a few of them actually. And on some, we didn't at all. We just had the band go with, with Elvis. And what we wound up finding is like the early, all of them, almost all of them, the early stuff, uh, back in the sixties, almost everything we worked on was cut at RCA studio B oh, and cool. they, 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 one of these was, I think two track, but I think the rest were three tracks, maybe a four track. Then there was a, like maybe maybe an eight track. I, I'm not sure. Maybe one sixteen. I can't remember, but Elvis in, in RCA studio B is just one room, no ISO. So he was always on a handheld mic because he liked to work hand handheld mic in the, in the room. Sometimes there were ribbon mics, ribbons are hot on both sides. So we were hearing on his vocal track, we're hearing drums, we're hearing piano, we're hearing backgrounds, we're hearing upright bass oh. and his vocal. Wow. So it was tricky. It was really tricky. And, uh, uh, it, you know, and on top of that, they printed like they, they had a live chamber in, uh, at studio B and they put, they printed like this three second long live chamber on his vocals. Oh. So we had leak and hit, we had this giant cave of vocal and on the original records with all those other people crammed in together going at once, you know, it, it doesn't sound quite as odd, but when you just have Elvis soloed, it's like, well, Elvis is in Carlsbad cavern. <laughs> and, uh, so we, we had to, uh, we had to address that. And, uh, we, uh, we used the, the obvious, uh, choice is, uh, um, isotope, um, RX six advanced and used, uh, um, you know, D verb and D noise. And, uh, and it was, that helped, that helped a lot, but it wasn't the total answer because there's just that kind of, those programs are really designed for like post, you know, film post-production where, you're you're hearing some noise in in a like a a live little room a splashy bathroom sounding thing and you you're getting rid of a short not three seconds of yeah. verb you yeah, know that's right. not so it was uh it was tough and uh so we uh, i did some of the cleanup but um actually there was a fellow in town that the great friend of mine that uh named tony castle and tony is really, really good at, um, RX six advanced and, uh, it showed me some things of, of course, but he's so good. He, he, uh, he became our chief cleanup man and, uh, he spent so much time on, on that, that program that, uh, and it's slow, it's slow going because it's the problem is 
you can get rid of stuff, but then it starts to eat into Elvis Presley. Yeah, you know? right. And right. that if you damaged you damaged the voice to the point it's unusable, then that's no good. And yeah. uh, so um, we would take it as far as we could without damaging the voice. Uh, and so RX six advanced with with uh, even uh, dialogue isolate we would use and with a denoise deverb and we came up early on we came up with a plan so Tony would. Sometimes I would clean up some of the noises, uh, the clicks and the pops and some of those things. And then I would give him the vocal and he would try to get rid of the, the, the upright bass and the drums and all that background stuff and the verb. And, and, uh, so we would have a system called, uh, uh like one X and two X, you know, one X was the, the lightest, the, the version that you know, cleaned up a lot. Now let's try a two X. That's a little more, uh, labor intensive and dig in even harder. And maybe in spots we can use two X, you know, right at the end of a line where there's a bunch of stuff going on. Maybe we can slip in two X on the end, uh, have one X all the way to the end and then put a little two X in there. That's a little quieter yeah. uh, where you can get away with it. And, uh, so anyway, we, we, we went down that path and then we were still, it was good, but it was, it, it was a tricky thing because we, at this point we hadn't tracked the, the players yet. Mm. We booked ocean way in Nashville and we had a, a big, you know, a band of, you know, guitar, bass, drums, keys, uh, electric guitar, acoustic guitar and a uh, great band. And, and, uh, everything was tempo mapped and, uh, charted. And a lot of times, uh, counts had to be, you know, put on tape uh, so that people would know what's coming up and, and also tell them, Hey, go with the click, listen to the click, trust it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt kind of like it was unnatural, but it, but it was right. And, uh, so it, it all came out real well, but then it's kind of the chicken and the, or the egg thing. It's like we clean it up as much as we can without damaging Elvis, but then we listen to the band and then the band would, would cover some of the stuff. And that was good. But then if the band didn't cover, then we may have to go back and work a little harder and, or Andy would alter the arrangement. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, uh, when we were tracking, we had Andy and Joel in the, you know, and, and we would go through and, and listen to the, uh, uh you know, agree on the song. They'd already agreed on the songs and we'd track them. And, uh, he knew where the trouble spots were cause we'd already put it on the, the grid and we already kind of knew. So I've, you know, created sessions. We went into the studio and started recording. And then we found out, you know, there's gotta be something else that we can try to get rid of some of this, this voice noise. Um, and we, we became aware of synaptic, um, unveil. Oh yeah. 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 And synaptic, I guess it is Z Y N A P I. Uh, a P T I Q unveil. And it's an interesting program. It's just a different algorithm. They do it a little different way. And that helped, that helped a lot. And so between the two that got most of the, the trash, but then as, as we, uh, we had the band tracked and then we really started to know, okay, well, what do we have now? That's too revealed. That sounds like a blast of weirdness, you know, where there's, trash. And so then Andy would have to figure, okay, well, we need, we need this choir. I mean, what he didn't want, one of the things we tried to avoid was the, uh, the stereotypical of the day, 
almost call and response. Like Elvis would go, there was, there will be peace in the background. There will be peace in yeah. the valley, in the valley. Nobody would do it like that. They don't do it like that. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, but we had that leak in there and it's like, well, if we get rid of that, we got to make sure we can get rid of the leak and where we couldn't get rid of the leak, then we'd add some, some other backgrounds or some other instruments or some, a B3 that's, uh, active enough to, or a guitar that had some stuff. So we went with a, uh, we made a modern recording with his vocal and, but being totally respective, uh, uh, respecting what he had done and his legacy. And, uh, and, um, so we cleaned it up as best we could. And then as we got into this, just coincidentally, uh, a friend of mine from, um, from Atlanta, his name's Lacey Thompson and Lacey and I've been friends forever. In fact, he was, if you had ever seen in a magazine, a picture of a guy holding a microphone and it said a singer's dream. And it was the Thompson vocal eliminator. Yeah. Yeah. And the eliminator had done, he was early on into that and, uh, had figured out it was a hardware piece and, uh, it had done real well for him. And, uh, so he's moved on and doing other, other things and doing digital versions of, of that kind of stuff. And, and I'm, he's telling me what he's doing. And I'm saying, well, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm working with Elvis Presley here and we're trying to clean up this, this, uh, vocal. And we got all this reverb, this real long. And, um, what we did not want to do, Andy was very adamant about this. He did not want to go to black between like Elvis is singing. Now he's not singing, go to black. And then he's back in because you hear that, you yeah, know, it sounds yeah. fake. And if there, and so we, in some cases, we actually added some noise back in some, some room tone so that when we lowered it, at least it didn't sound like it just went totally black. And, uh, so that made it sound more natural and that, that worked for us. But then I was explaining this to, uh, Lacey and, uh, of, of, you know, vocal, vocal eliminators fame. And he said, you know, I've got something I think that'll probably, probably help a lot. He said, I, I hadn't even patented it yet. And, uh, he said, but I'll, I'll send you a, I'll send you a, I'll send you a copy. And we worked with it. He said, it's, it's VST, which means I had to put a wrapper on and use the VST and, uh, to try to get rid of some of that verb because, uh, and, and it was pretty amazing what that would do. We did that on top of kind of the last, the, the third layer after one X and two X with the uh, RX and then uh, unveil. And then we'd add that where we needed to. And there's some areas where it just dried it up like pretty amazingly. Wow. And other areas, it's a, it's a, in some spots we couldn't do it. It just, it damaged Elvis and we weren't going to, we weren't going to mess with E, you know, we can't, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> we can't just win the, win the battle, but lose the war. Cause we turned him into something bad. So, so we, we did the best we could. And, um, so that was the, uh, the three things. And he wouldn't exactly tell me what it was cause he hadn't even patented it yet. And, uh, I think he's gonna, uh, it'll be later on when he releases that. But anyway, I had a, you know, kind of a prototype of that. And, uh, and that helped a lot. He's really, Lacey's a really bright guy. I mean, very, very normal, but very bright. And, uh, so we worked with his and, and so the, the, that's that's what we did and when we when we started to mix then it really became obvious okay we've cleaned it up well enough and gosh but on the first line of you saw me crying in let's use Lacey's 
Lacey's version that really dries it up so that you hear it dry at the front and then you just kind of assume that it's going to be dry the rest of the way, which is, it's not, but, but it's, it's, uh, but it kind of fools the ear that way. Sure. And, uh, and it, it was, it was fascinating. And, uh, there were also, uh, so there basically there were three, three producers on this. There was Joel Weinshanker, Andy Childs, uh, who's a great musician plays, you know, guitar and keys and, and great singer. And, Actually, he's steeped in the gospel tradition. He was, uh, he was married to one of the Blackwood sisters, uh, Blackwood daughters, uh, from way back and, uh, uh, not anymore, but so he knew all these, and we even brought in the original, some original, uh, they're, they're old, they're old now, but some of the original, uh, Imperials and the stamps and some of the people from that, that had sang on the records originally and also out live with vague in Vegas and, wow. uh, and, uh, on the road. So it was, it was, uh, it was, we went to tracking room for that. We, uh, we lined up like seven or eight of these guys, Terry Blackwood and Donnie Sumner and, and Larry Strickland, uh, was a bass singer. And we, we put them all lined up and baffled them and put mics on them and, and recorded, you know, got several takes. And, uh, so that was, that was pretty fascinating. Kind of a reunion for some of those guys, you know, yeah. Now they're getting pretty old. And, uh, so that was fun. And we had that, we did that on a couple of songs. And then Andy, uh, also put a smaller group, uh, a, a modern gospel group. That's just phenomenal. And, uh, they, they came out and, uh, added, uh, what the, the other stuff. And then there was a giant choir. I mean, a huge church choir that was, that, that was quadrupled. So it's like for how great thou art and some of these things, it was just massive. And, uh, but most of it, we wanted to try to show people really how great Elvis's voice was. I mean, it was astounding how good he, he sang and, uh, and, um, his, his delivery, his pitch his his, uh, inflections. Uh, and he's one of these singers. Cause we actually, this, this is what's actually cool. We had, we were privy to some of the outtakes or some of the, alt, not outtakes, but alternate takes, I guess you would say. Yeah. Cause they would, you know, as, as you know, they, uh, they didn't, they couldn't comp. Uh, they really didn't comp, uh, cause it was all going at once. They didn't punch, um, no pro tools, no, no. So basically you'd run it once and say, Oh no, that wasn't good. You run it again. No, that was, let's change that. Run it again. Maybe the third or fourth take was the one. And so the one was the one. And that's really what most of the world has heard of, of Elvis Presley. But Andy got some of the, uh, some of the, uh, um, alternate takes, some that like were take one and, uh, maybe the thing didn't go all the way before it stopped and they changed something, but where his voice was really fresh and just a slightly different, uh, approach, he, a, a different lick or something. So it, it was, it was just, it was kind of breathtaking really to hear, you know, Elvis sort of comped, uh, so to speak. Did you use any of that? Yes, we did. We, uh, we, we did on several of these things. Uh, and what Andy did not want to do wisely was say, okay, well, we got this course. Well, let's copy and paste and then copy and paste again so that we have now a three and a half minute song and not a two minute song. Yeah. He said, we don't, well, I'm not doing that. I don't want to. So he would find an alternate take with a different Elvis vocal, same song, same band, but just different. And, uh, so that it, 
it doesn't sound like it's all pasted together, you know, yeah. which was very cool to do. And so that was, uh, that was the, the routine. And in addition to having the old, the old, old timers, the gospel legend, legendary singers from the sixties and the small group that, uh, that, uh, Andy put together and he called on Gus Gacious, who is a, a great, um, uh, modern gospel singer and, uh, put together a group. And in the, the big church, also, um, Andy went to uh, New York. I didn't make this trip. I really wish I could have. I, I had to keep mixing, but because it was a deadline, and our deadline was Elvis week, which huh. is August 15th. So it had to be done by then, which means it had to be done uh, like three weeks ago, a month ago, yeah. you know, to get, because uh, they're doing vinyl, they're doing a cassette, and they're also doing the, the DVD. Uh-huh. And uh, so it, it's a lot of lead time that was necessary. But so he went up and got, um, Sissy Houston, Whitney's mom oh, yeah. and, um, Darlene love on this record as well. Wow. And because Darlene and Sissy had sung with him in the past, um, I think Sissy had sung, uh, in, uh, one of them had sung in the Elvis in the Vegas, I think. And the other, other was, was, uh, singing, with him on the 68 comeback special, the one they called the Elvis 1968 comeback special. Yeah, yeah. And we did one of the songs out of, we did one of the songs off of that, which was, uh, which was great. And that was actually, that was recorded. That track was recorded on the, uh, it was a, it, it was, that was recorded out in Hollywood back in the day in 1968. And so we had that and there was leak, but it was a different kind of leak. I mean, it was blaring horns and live and, uh, and it's really exciting. And, uh, and there was actually a, a third producer on this and it was Lisa Marie Presley and Lisa sang, uh, with her dad on a couple of songs, a song called where no, where no one stands alone, which is the name of the album. And, um, uh, gosh, what's the other one? It was, I can't, yeah. I can't remember. Um, he, she sang on two of them. One of them was, where no one stands alone. And it was, uh, it was extremely, extremely, you know, neat to hear her. I mean, cause she was nine when he died. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so they've got a picture of, of her and him leaning down talking to her, you know, cause they've got just like with so many of these big artists, you, everything is, you know, every picture is taken, every moment is documented and, but the exciting thing about this to me was, I mean, I'd seen Elvis live back in the early seventies. Uh, he came to the Omni in Atlanta and I saw him there and it was, it was breathtaking. It was unreal, but you know, certainly you never think, well, I'm going to get to work with Elvis Presley. But, but when you think about it, there's only been four acts that I can think of that ever achieved this kind of fame and notoriety. Frank Sinatra was first and then, he passed the baton to Elvis and then there were the Beatles and then Michael Jackson. And that's arguably the four, four big ones. And there's others. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, a very subjective thing, but to, to be able to entertain, to sing, to dance, to act, to, uh, in the Beatles case, uh, right. Uh, along with Michael Jackson. So these were, they were so big, they transcended any medium. They were just huge. And so that's why we were so, so careful to, uh, 
to uh, and not do anything that would, we wanted to make sure Elvis would approve, you know. Let me ask you a question, Ed. When you were mixing, what was your approach? Because way back in the day when this was originally made, the vocals were way, way, way out in front. And I'm just curious if you did the same thing or were you trying to stay true to that or did you just make it more modern or the way you heard it or how do you do that? We did make it more modern. We, we couldn't, we couldn't have it out quite that far. It would just be, it would sound, it was one of the things we were trying to get away from. That was 50 years ago. And, and we, 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 we didn't bury him either though. Cause I mean, he's the event. He's, he's what people are coming for. So we were proud of how he sang and people just don't, everybody knows he was a great singer, but people don't realize how great he was. Some of these 1966, 67, it's just like, Oh my gosh. I mean, and, and so we would pull him, we'd, we'd have him front and center, but we'd pull him back a little bit. And in the mixing approach, we would put things to the left and right of him. We didn't cover him up in the middle yeah. as much as we could. Um, and so we, we try to get things out of his way. So we didn't have to turn him up so loud, but one thing we needed to do. So he wouldn't just be, he wouldn't just sound like mono man with this echo and this leak in the middle. I, I, I created a, uh, a wide, a wide bus, I guess. And what, what I would do is I would take his vocal and I would add some of the modern effects of, of verb and maybe a short room, but I would also feed his vocal into a, a separate bus, um, that I, I used some MS, uh, EQ, uh, and some verb. So a little delay, very light. So it doesn't sound like, you know, delay man or anything. Cause it, 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 we didn't want to do that. I mean, of course he was using delay back in the fifties, you know, yeah, right, right. delay, but, but, uh, and we use that a little bit, but uh, on a few of these things, but a lot of these, when he would sing, we, with this MS and it would, you know, uh, EQ it brighter on the sides and EQ it, uh, less in the center, darker in the center. So it kind of made him sound like he was in the room rather than pasted on. Mm -hmm. That's what we tried to do. And in most cases we were successful with that. Some, it didn't really matter, but on some of these, we, we wanted that. We didn't want him to see, well, we got a cool new track. We pasted Elvis on that. Then we would, that would not be the, the thing. So we were, we were pretty uh, careful about that and tried to create, okay, he's in the room, but you're not just hearing him straight back where you're hearing him a little left and right, but everything we had to do, we had to be careful because with such a legacy artist, you didn't want to screw this one up, you know? Yeah. How long did it take you to do the whole project? This was about a five month project. Actually, okay. it was about a five month project. And the first month and a half or maybe at least a month and a half, maybe two was prepping the vocals, putting them on the grid where we need to cleaning them up, seeing what we could get away with. Uh, Andy constructing the, uh, the versions and, uh, and, um, and then th that was uh, tracking was like actually, uh, four days. Huh. And so, uh, you know, we, we took our time, we got it right. We let everybody get comfortable with it because we had clicks. We had, I had created two different kind of clicks. I had a straight eight, a quarter note click, but I also had a, uh, an eighth note click. So so that they could have their choice. You want clonk, clonk, you want blah, 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 whatever you want. And then 
the guys were blown away singing to in their headphones the voice of Elvis Presley. So oh, I bet. it was it was pretty cool. It was breathtaking. And and but really it took a month and a half to for Andy and Joel to agree on the songs and um to uh, weed out the ones that just weren't weren't going to work and and then uh and then the construction so we could overdub to this and and make a record out of it with modern guys um and several were from they live here but several from Memphis I remember with the, the bass player said, Hey, believe me, growing up in Memphis, Elvis loomed large <laughs> in my, my household. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. So it was tremendous, but we, well, we didn't try to put him so far out that it sounded dated, you know? Uh, but we didn't bury him either. Like, uh, like a pop record. We wanted, we wanted people to hear what he's doing, but also be able to enjoy the band as well. Sure. Sure. What were the original tapes like? Were they in good shape? Amazingly, they were in great shape. They had been transferred and archived uh, by Sony in New York. So we didn't see any real tapes. Uh, we saw the Pro Tools files that came down, and, and almost all were 24-bit 96K. And so since that was what Elvis's files were, that's the, that was the session resolution that we went with. Yeah. Because there wasn't any point in dumbing that down. And uh, But... I'll say that the, the the tapes were once they were transferred, they were phenomenal. They were there was no hiss. There really was very very little hiss. So those guys were in the the middle of uh, the analog world and they knew how to do it. I don't know how hot they were cutting or if they were using low noise tape or what, but it was like there wasn't a lot of. I mean, I'd gotten more hiss on stuff that I had recorded in the mid seventies than they got. Yeah. I mean, I didn't hear any hiss really very, almost very little hiss, uh, very little. But, uh, uh, the problem, like I said, was all the leak. Cause sometimes you'd solo up an Elvis Presley vocal before we'd cleaned it up. And it sounded like, it sounded like a mix. Well, I hear bass, I hear drums. It sounded like a mono mix, <laughs> bass, drums, backgrounds, drums, and all this verb. And, uh, so it was, it was shocking. And, uh, but Andy wanted to try to clean the vocals up as much as we could. So, so we could really hear how good he was. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and it, he was tremendous. There's some, some stuff on here that just gives me, you know, goosebumps. Yeah. I mean, it's wow. And, and the thing I noticed from some of these, let's see, what song was it? Oh, it was the crying in the chapel. One of the interesting things So we're listening through to the, the takes and the alternate takes and, or actually it was like rolling. They'd, they'd roll the tape and he'd start and they'd get through it and then let's do it again. And second one, just very linear. No, no stacked up like pro tools linear. And so the second one, we, it, it was starting to roll down the line and he, he said, um, he said a lyric and the Jordanaires always would, in a lot of cases would answer. He'd say, um, where the da, 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 knees and pray. Well, one time on one of these rundowns, he, uh, they must've lost their place or something. Cause he sang a line and then they come in with knees and pray. And he goes, say, say what? <laughs> and, uh, everybody starts to laugh. And cause obviously they, the knees and pray wasn't the right place. wasn't it the right place to be when, when they sang it. And so you can hear him laughing, you can hear him joking, but he has that ability that as some of the great artists that we know have in that he could, he can be clowning. He can be joking. Okay, here we go. Rolling. Here we go. And now he's 
you saw me. He's right back into character. Yeah. I mean, it was great. It was like some people can't do that. Can't turn it on and off like that yeah. and uh, get serious about it again. Sounds like it was a huge amount of fun. It really was. It was a gas. I mean, I, it, like I said, a five-year, a, a five-month five pro- process, and uh, uh, about a song a day we'd mix and uh, maybe get a little ahead on on one or two. But uh, it was it was it was something else. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's one of the few projects where it was a lot a lot of uh, intense working at it uh, to get it. But it was it was tremendous fun and. Uh, and I, I just, I'm just so fortunate that I was, uh, I was a, you know, called to do the job because yeah. it's, it, it, this doesn't happen very often, you know? Yeah. 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 I want to ask you one question kind of off the subject here. The last time you were on the podcast was four years ago about, and it was on number 28 and this one's going to be number 221, I think. What's changed in four years for you? Have you seen anything in the business change? What's changed for you, the way you work? The big thing that has changed is the uh, proliferation, I guess you can say, of the, the, the track guy, the track guys. In other words, uh, all these great players moved to Nashville because L.A., it's, of course, there's still sessions, but there's a lot of rock bands and TV out there. In New York, a lot of dance. And, uh, so all the real players had moved here from the, all the other areas. And we used to do demos and we would crank it up, everybody counted off and we would play down the song and the artist would, or the singer or the demo or whatever would record. Now, so many of the, uh, so many of the artists have, uh, one of the co-writers or a track guy that programs the bass, programs the loop, programs the drums, programs the keyboards and the, and maybe you'll stick a background on there and the lead vocal, that's it. So that has really changed a lot. Whereas there are just less people involved in making these records. A lot of these records, it's more of the pop approach really. Mm-hmm. And that, that can be good and bad. I mean, economically it can be good, but it really depends on how well the, the arranger is that's doing the, that's doing the, um, the, the track guy thing, uh, where the one guy programs virtually everything. And it's just like it was the same thing happened when you had arrangers and the arranger would arrange. If you had Quincy Jones arranging your stuff, you know, you were in good hands and it was going to be great. But if you had uh, an arranger that had stuff in the way of the vocals and in the way of the band, just like today with the track guys, if the drums and the loops don't work together and you get strange rhythms going that sound odd, you know, uh, then you've got a strange track. And, uh, so I, I think that you just got to really be careful about that, but, but that's the big difference. I think, um, that, and there's less studios than before. There's more recording going on at, at, at houses. Although I'm seeing that, uh, I think it's, it's, it's kind of flirting it going back a little bit, uh, to a real band because the great thing, as you know, is like, as a guitar player, I got an idea and then you had an idea on keyboard and then so, and then, well, yeah, I like that. And I'm going to add on to that. And all of a sudden you get a lots of creativity on there, not just one man's creativity. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a big, that's a big thing that that's pretty important. Gosh, uh, less studios, uh, vinyl has started to continue to stick its head up and now cassettes. I mean, I don't really expect vinyl and cassettes to, 
dominate, but uh, it's kind of interesting that it has. There's several places here in town that have lathes again. And uh, yeah. uh, there was a time there were like three or four lathes on, on some of the main streets here and then no lathes. And now there's a few lathes that are coming back. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter, for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.